Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Thursday, February 9th, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana. Uh, Sarah Abbott is working from The Hangar in Bristol, Connecticut. And Taylor Schwenk has helped out this week on this production, Sarah, but he kind of abandoned us as we get to the finish line today. Going to Vermont to go skiing? Super rude, Taylor, that you left us to go skiing. I'm sure you're going to have a great time. I'm not jealous. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. <laughs> well, you know, that gives you carte blanche to take shots at him, as you already have. Like, you're one for one and taking shots. But maybe when we get to the bleacher tweets, uh, there'll be some more. We have a big show today. We're going to be talking with Dave Roberts, the Dodgers manager. I'm going to be asking him whether or not he's going to guarantee another Dodger World Series the way that he did last year. We're going to be talking with Ben Charrington the general manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. I'm going to be asking him about Brian Reynolds and what his status is. Of course, uh, during the course of the offseason, Reynolds has requested a trade. Don Glanville will join us, Sarah Langs, and Jessica Mendoza. Shohei Otani is set for the WBC. He'll, of course, play for Japan, but his Angels future is murky. Uh, Perry Manassian, their general manager, said that he'll make one start for the Angels, exhibition start, before he heads off the WBC Artie Moreno, the Angels owner, told the New York Post this week that he wants to keep Shohei Otani. Yeah, so I, I when I saw that, uh, Sarah, I was like, is that is that really breaking news? <laughs> like Artie Moreno saying he wants to keep the the, the most popular player in the world. Woohoo! This is brand new information. I, for one, am shocked. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had this strange comment. Artie did as well. He said, I'd like to say we have as good a chance as anybody. Actually, you'd like to, if you're Artie, you'd like to be able to say we have a better chance than anybody since you've been playing with their team for a while, and they're the one team right now that can actually negotiate with them. Uh, we'll be talking uh, during, the, of course, the podcast about all that. The Dodgers agreed to turns with infielder Miguel Rojas and a $6 million one-year deal that takes him through the 2024 season. He already was under contract for 2023. The Dodgers also announced they're going to retire the number 34 jersey of pitcher Fernando Valenzuela. I think this is pretty cool. You know, I've said in the podcast before, I grew up a huge Dodger fan. Fernando in 1981, Fernando Mania. That was just amazing. Uh, pitcher Max Fried uh, lost to the Braves again in salary arbitration. He'll do okay. $13.5 million this year as he moves closer to free agency. Shortstop Bo Bichette avoided arbitration on Tuesday night, agreeing to a three-year deal with the Blue Jays. This was big news in Baltimore. Uh, Orioles CEO John Angelos and his brother Lou Angelos agreed to end their fight over a lawsuit in which Lou accused John of seizing control of the team in defiance of his father, Peter Angelos' wishes. Uh, there is speculation that this settlement and this speculation within the industry that it could facilitate the sale of the team, not necessarily the move of the team, but the sale of the team at some point. On Monday, Jeff Passan's interview with Mets owner Steve Cohen was published on ESPN.com, in which Cohen addressed his big spending and his record-setting payroll. Here's a clip from that interview that Jeff did with Steve Cohen. But we're in New York, and, um, and I'm competitive. <laughs> and, and that's, listen, if you're going to own a team, my view, you know, you, you, you know I, I came in with a commitment. 
I came in with a commitment that I was going to put a good product on the field. And I think I've done that. Um, I had no idea what it was going to cost to put a good product on the field. Saying that, you know, I'm in a position where, you know, I make a good income, right? So, um, you know, I can, I, I can do this. Cohen talked about building a pipeline of talent, perhaps reducing spending. You'll hear Jeff ask a follow-up question. Uh, uh, getting to the point, I'd love to develop some pitching, right? Pitching's really expensive. And, um, um, if, you know, I don't know why we can't. Other people can. I don't know. At some point, we will. And so the goal is to eventually get our payroll down to something more, you know, normalized, you know, for a New York team. Yeah, what is normalized? I don't know. What I thought was normalized turned out to be a lot higher. Okay, so, you know, I don't know the answer to it. I mean, like, you know, I always say this, like, you know, I don't create the world. I got to live in it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I had no idea. Yeah, what's interesting is when you talk with executives, other teams, they laugh at the idea that uh, Cohen at some point is going to pare back on his spending. Uh, he talked about the industry criticism that he's been hearing. I've heard, you know, what everyone else has heard, you know, that they're not happy with me. And, and uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, I told I'm not sure. I'm a, I hear things like from people who are maybe more neutral that, they're taking a lot of heat from their fans, and um, that's and, what it is. And um, you know, I I kind of look at that like you know you're, you're looking at the wrong person then. Okay, like just be they're putting it on me. Maybe they need to look more at themselves. Sarah, what else you got? Well, Buster, do you know what Sunday is? Any guesses? It's the Super Bowl. Who you got? Who you got? Chiefs or Eagles? I'm going Chiefs. I'm going Chiefs just because, listen, I love the Kelsey brothers, but Travis Kelsey has a special place in my heart ever since that little clip with his niece went viral. But anyways, since we have Super Bowl Sunday, be sure to check out our whole slate of NFL shows, including the Adam Schefter podcast, the Dominique Foxworth show, Kyle Brandt's basement, Bill Barnwell show, and much, much more. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Jessica Mendoza is an analyst for ESPN, and she also is an analyst on Dodger games. But today, Jess, uh, we, we and we are going to get some Dodger questions, but today we start with what Steve Cohen said to Jeff Passan the other day. I think it was kind of like an owner's version of throwing shade when he talked about maybe they need to look at themselves. What did you make of what Steve Cohen said? 
I mean, he's an honest guy. I mean, he's somebody that honestly, and, and I think by themselves, obviously he meant owners, but I think the sport itself, I mean, I think they're some of the, the quotes that I, I did like in that piece, you know, that Jeff Passan, you know, got from Steve Cohen and kind of talked about was the fact that this is inevitable. This is where the sport is heading as long as it's allowed. And when you look at, you know, the most recent collective bargaining and the fact that we keep getting this luxury tech tax threshold, you know, higher and higher and higher. And of course, for Steve Cohen, it doesn't even matter where it's at, but um, it's it's something where as long as you have owners that have this kind of money that are willing to spend it and the sport allows it, why wouldn't you? And I understand that it, it hurts the game, but that isn't Steve Cohen's problem. His idea of trying to be the owner for the New York Mets is to do all that he can to make them win now. And, and you know, he talked about ideally building up the farm system so he does not have to spend the amount of money that he has. But if he wants to win now, you have to go and spend and buy all of the talent. And, you know, especially because of where their farm system is at. So, I mean, I think it was, yes, owners looking at themselves, but also really the sport looking itself in the mirror if this is something that you don't want. Yeah. And by the way, I, you know, when uh, I've talked with folks with other teams, other owners, and they're laughing at that, like the idea that, yeah, he's going to stop spending. Sure. Like you're someone who clearly wants to be the best. If he has an opportunity to get great players and he's got the money, he's going to do that. I, I definitely feel like that what he's done this winter, what Peter Seidler has done in San Diego has really changed the context for other owners and put them in an uncomfortable position. You got the San Diego Padres spending a ton of money. And I think a lot of fans of other teams are like, Hey, why not? You know, why not our guys? Well, especially the Padres. I mean, that to me, after seeing what they've done, of course, the last like five years, but this last offseason and what they continue, their payroll and their small market, like they're in that small market category. The New York Mets, it's been decades coming. <laughs> like, How have they not been the team that spends more money? So I almost feel like Steve Cohen is making up for the last 40 years um, of not spending. But for the San Diego Padres, now it's, it's really, yeah, if you are a fan of a smaller market team, you are asking your, your, your owners, your organization, why not us? Why can't we spend? If we go out and get the players, you know, feel the dream style, they will come. You know, the, the support, the money will continue to come if we start winning. And I don't think that's the case for every single organization. But to me, Buster, it, it isn't even so much the Mets because that's expected. It is the Padres and teams that you're starting to see like that are more sm small market that you don't expect. And I, I wonder if it's going to change the landscape as we move forward. I believe this, that if not for the presence of Steve Cohen, that Aaron Judge would be with the Padres or the Giants. I don't think the Yankees would have felt compelled to step up and pay him. But I think that the fact that the Mets have suddenly be become a big spending team has changed the context in New York, changed the context for Hal Steinbrenner, and effectively forced him to spend more than maybe he would have otherwise. So you buying that or are you thinking, no, they would have signed him anyway? Uh, they, I think they would have signed him anyway. And I think more just because we're going to look back on Aaron Judge and like the the legendary like part of how they wanted to tie him with the Yankees forever. Um, okay. I think because the Giants were willing to spend. I mean, I agree that, that there is pressure on the Yankees. Absolutely. I mean, literally Steve Cohen is George Steinbrenner 2.0. I mean, it is definitely now the the mindset that we've seen in the Yankees organization, you know, prior to this. But I think when it comes to Aaron Judge now, I, I this pressure is definitely there, but I feel like they were going to resign him no matter what. So real quick, uh, since I mentioned Aaron Judge, I've been asked this question in recent weeks uh, uh, about captaincy in baseball. 
You know, that was something that was given to him by Hal Steinbrenner. He becomes the the first captain since Derek Jeter. And I got to say, in baseball, like, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think it's it's bigger for the media. I think it's bigger for, uh, you know, fans. I don't think players really care about that. I don't think they think about it, especially since there's no official duties tied to being the captain. We all know Judge is a great leader behind the scenes. I don't think this changes anything. What about no. you? No. No, it definitely doesn't. I think it, it secures his place in history. You know, like I think, you know, the, because of the names and the history of Dodger or Dodger, excuse me, Yankee captains and all of the players that have come before. I mean, that's what it does. And you're right. It's something to, you know, put alongside Aaron Judge's name before he's even, you know, created the rest of like the legendary career. I think they're hoping that he's going to have in a Yankee uniform. But you nailed it. It is so old school. I mean, you see that even now at the college level when there was always designated captains um, because you needed to know who your leaders were and who the people that were going to be talking with the coaches and managers. But that's different now. Um, you don't need to put a C on their jersey. You know who yeah. they are. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I uh, When that whole conversation was going on in the fall, I was kind of shaking my head. I'm like, yeah, players don't care about that. Um, you know, leaders become apparent, you know, to the players on the team as the seasons go along. I got a bleacher tweet uh, for you from PK Steinberg, who makes reference to the situation with the Pittsburgh Pirates this winter. Brian Reynolds, their center fielder, requested a trade through his agents. Uh, subsequently, they uh, they signed Andrew McCutcheon. Um, ben Charrington, the general manager of the Pirates, is coming up in just a moment. I'm going to ask him about Brian Reynolds and, and that situation. But the question from PK is, do you think Andrew McCutcheon returning to the Pirates could help keep Brian Reynolds in the black and gold? Uh, PK, I'm sorry. I'm super cynical. I'm like, no. <laughs> Each player makes their own decisions, their own contract decisions, their own money decisions. And while I think Andrew, uh, you know, will enjoy his time with Brian and vice versa, I don't think it, it makes a whit of difference. What about you, Jess? Yeah, I wish it did. Honestly, like I wish that that existed where it was like, oh, man, like what he's done here in Pittsburgh and right. the fact that he is this leader in this, you know, like if you were to have a C captain in Pittsburgh, it would absolutely be Andrew McCutcheon and that players would want that, that that would be a priority. Like I get to be able to play alongside one of the greats in a city where he has been one of the best um, that that would that that would mean something. And and I'm not saying that it means nothing to Brian Reynolds. But I mean, we all know, like, it's about the dollars. It's about the priorities of what Brian wants and not so much who he's playing alongside and the influence. And that it makes me sad because as soon as as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's not real. Like, that's yeah. that's unfortunately not not where the game's at. And we've seen time and time again, players, even when they are established in cities and they're playing in a place that they love, they will go somewhere else if that's what will pay more or where their family will benefit more. Exactly. The Dodgers announced last weekend they're retiring the number 34 of Fernando Valenzuela. Uh, what do you think? Finally. <laughs> like that, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I, I'm so biased on this one, though. I grew up in the 80s in L.A. I mean, we went and watched Fernando so much. I had his autograph when I was four years old. Um, what he did in that community, I, I cannot even describe and being, you know, my father being, you know, Mexican American, um, to see the, the stands literally transform the fan base in Los Angeles transform because of 
Fernandomania and bringing in a Hispanic community that Buster, you know, you go into Chavez Ravine to this day, and especially where we walk in and those upper decks. I mean, it is from like the tacos from, I mean, the margaritas, like the, the, I mean, literally the mariachis, like there is a complete transformation that happened and not obviously just in Los Angeles, but throughout the entire game. Um, so the fact that that number didn't get retired the day that he retired, I, I think that's what should have happened. But kudos to the Dodgers for finally doing it because he has been the most impactful Dodger when you talk about the Hispanic community and the fan base that's in Los Angeles. In just a moment, I'm going to ask Dave Roberts, the Dodgers manager, uh, about whether or not he's going to predict that the Dodgers are going to win the World Series. This because he, <laughs> it, last summer I had a conversation with him about his guarantee last year, which I didn't think that was big of a deal, uh, as big of a deal as it became, especially after he explained why he did it. What do you think? Yeah, it's funny. I I mean, that's the expectation. Like, you're going to win the World Series if you're the Los Angeles Dodgers with that payroll, right. that talent. So he was just, to me, like, that's what you talk about. That's what you say. I mean, honestly, every manager in spring training guaranteed at some point, it's not to the media, but it's within the clubhouse. We are going to win the World Series this year. You put that into the universe. You let every player know that is our goal. It is not to just win our division. It is not to just, you know, be able to hit all these other goals. It is to win it all and be the last one standing at the very end. And he just put it literally out there to everybody. And it's funny because I had players coming up to me like later in the season, like, well, we'll see, you know, I can't believe he said that that's pin, you know, that's bulletin board material. And I'm like, really? Like, that's like the Dodgers saying that they're going to win the world series. Like not every team is already thinking or expecting that they would do the same. It just, it surprised me. Um, and it, it's something that I feel like I hear. The reaction surprised you. The reaction, not him doing it, him doing it. I was like, uh, duh. He's stating <laughs> like, the obvious. Like yeah, when I covered the, win Yankees, the World Series, right? When I covered the Yankees, the players went into the year knowing that you know under the Steinbrenner doctrine, if they didn't win the World Series, it was a failure. The year was considered to be a failure. That's where the Dodgers have gone to now because they're in the postseason every year. The Atlanta Braves in the '90s, I think, sort of you know in early 2000s, operated under the same premise. They went to the playoffs every year. We all took that for granted. Uh, it, the only question was whether or not they'd win the World Series. Yeah. And how we still look back on that Braves team. It's like, really? That's it? I mean, that's how I feel about the last 10 years with the Dodgers. Like, this yes. is a team that should have won. And and I think they, not, I think, I know that that is the understanding for everyone in baseball is that this team should win or have a chance to win the World Series. So he was just putting it out there. And the fact that people took it as, oh, man, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> it surprised me that the reaction was that strong. Yeah, I'm going to ask Dave, too, about shortstop Gavin Lux, uh, you know, penciled in from your eyes watching him play. What's the biggest question mark about him on defense? Uh, his range. I mean, he he's somebody that, you know, I think does a, a good job. And he did play some games at shortstop last year, but you saw it when he moved to the outfield. I don't know how many times you got a chance to see when they put him in the outfield. Um, you know, and that's a position where you're challenged more on reads, you know, being able to have more depth and, and understanding. And he really struggled out there. Now, I think he will be able to, you know, play shortstop and not, I don't think he's going to struggle. And, and remember, Trey Turner had a lot of errors. He was not the ideal, perfect defensive shortstop by any means, which I think is a big reason why the Dodgers weren't, you know, f you know, first in line to re resign him. 
But Gavin Lux is going to have to be able to, you know, make the plays that he's going to have to have more range for. And that's that's something that I feel like he does a good job at second base. He understands Reed's positioning. I mean, we've seen defensive positioning now be the all-time understanding of where hitters are going to hit the ball. Um, but shortstop changes that. You're going to get a lot of mishits, you know, balls over your head, like that, that kind of stuff that I feel like great shortstops are able to get to. And I want to see Gavin Lux, you know, be challenged and be able to do that. Now, I think with work, he can do it. We saw it with his adjustment and hitting left-handed pitching, which was a huge jump for him offensively this year. I mean, the the year that he had this this past year, and a big part of that was being able to adjust to left-handed um, pitching and be an everyday player. All right. You were just coaching overseas, which had everything to do with your love for the sport and nothing to do with traveling, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> Tell me what that experience was like and where'd you go? Yeah. Uh, well, it was Rimini, Italy had a huge conference. It was called Connex. It was baseball and softball. Mike Piazza was leading up the the baseball side of it. My Olympic coach, Mike Candrea, was leading up the the softball side. Um, they had a, the biggest crowd they've ever had. Um, you've seen this when we've gone to London to do Yankees and Red Sox. I know that game will return this summer again, but just the passion in Europe. So even though I was in Italy, I mean, there were coaches from all over Europe. Shoot, I met three different coaches from South America, um, a coach from Argentina that had flown in because the access to this kind of information and coaches, Brent Strom was there, who's the pitching coach for the Arizona Diamondbacks. And I mean, I was sitting and taking notes, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, the, the level of learning, um, Nancy Evans, who was an all-time great softball pitcher and the stuff that she was teaching, Caitlin Callahan, who works with the Cubs, she's, um, you know, works with the Rapsodo and all of the technologies that we're seeing. I mean, I sat in and took notes, learning where the technology is at in baseball and how much, you know, we're seeing that shift and change and what she's doing within the Cubs organization, um, so to have this in Europe, Buster, was so big because, I mean, there were people like crying, crying, emotional, because there's such a lack of information and and not a lot of support for baseball and softball throughout Europe. Um, so, but it's a growing, passionate group. And you've seen it firsthand. Um, when we were in London, all of the, the fans that were there from all over Europe that were so excited to have baseball um, on that side of the pond. And that makes me happy knowing moving forward, that's something Major League Baseball is going to do. I want to be a part of this conference in the future. And of course, like as you mentioned, being in Italy doesn't hurt, um, <laughs> even though it was the winner. I brought my sister. She taught infield. She's a, um, a high school coach here. She teaches. She coaches baseball, actually. Um, and I love, love being able to share, you know, what we've learned, but also just being able to meet people, right? I mean, I've met lifelong friends um, teaching and playing the sport, and I've met a lot more. I plan to go to Argentina, in fact, the coach that I met there next year to teach and bring equipment down to his teams in Argentina. All right. Uh, 30 seconds. I'm going to ask this of Sarah Langs too. your favorite Jim Carrey movie. Oh, man. Um, I would have to say... And it's not it's Bruce Almighty. Like I, I think that one would would stand out to me the most. Even though he's had so many like much more funny and comedy. Like just depends on what mood I'm in because Jim Carrey kind of like across the spectrum um, has covered it all. And I, I mean Ace Ventura was the one I quoted throughout my entire high school years. Um, but looking back on it, you know I'm so much more mature now. You know, so like understanding that uh, maybe Bruce Almighty is maybe more of the category I'd be in. Or what was yeah. the one where he said TV? Um, it was like the TV show. or the, uh, But Truman it was his show. real life. What? Truman Show. Yes. 
that one actually might be my favorite. Nice. Well, I'll, I'll, yeah. fair. I'll tell you the one degree of separation that I have from that one. Zero degree of separation I have from that movie. I'll tell you off air. You're Thanks, in yes. it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Dave Roberts is the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And Dave, I, I've been watching the news for this because after a conversation with you last summer, I, I fully expect this. Have you guaranteed a win in the World Series for the Dodgers yet? <laughs> I have not done it uh, up to this point, Buster. Um, but I do believe that uh, we are going to win the World Series. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not going to go on, on record like I did last year, but I, I just do feel, though, Buster, it's like, you got to believe in your team, your organization. And uh, there's not a year I don't go into that season expecting win the World Series. And I expect our players to feel the same way. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of want you to like guarantee because what your explanation to me last summer was perfect. And I told about 10 of your peers it and they're, they're not in their head. Uh, you know, Galen Carr, who, of course, works in your front office. He and I went to the same high school in Western Mass. And he was on Hot Stove event with me last week. And I said on the on the Zoom, like when Dave explained this, like, hey. You know, when we've been in the postseason every year, our fan expectation is we're going to win the World Series. Why not? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, though, is like a lot of times people just run away from the expectations. When you right. are part of the Dodger organization, you're expected to win. Um, and that's just kind of the way it is. You got to embrace that. Yeah. And I and, and when you when you uh, laid it out for me, it made total sense to me. So I I'm waiting for that when you declare finally, because I'm like, yeah, you got nothing to lose. Everyone. Everyone thinks you're going to win the World Series anyway, or they expect you to. So, so why not? Uh, That's exactly right. So, if I do go out on record, you're going to be my first call. Okay. Uh, I am curious, though. I, I was surprised uh, to this point. Why haven't you? Well, I, I think right now, I, I think uh, I still got to get familiar with our ball club. Uh, okay. There's been some turnover, um, and um, you know, I also. You know, I think there's a confidence, but you know, have that really true confidence. You got to kind of know the inner workings of the club. And granted, I, I know a lot of the guys. The core is still intact, but there's the dynamic uh, as far as kind of how our dynamic is working. There's some different players. Yep. Uh, and some questions for you guys at shortstop, and and what uh, what's going to happen there? Who's going to get the playing time? What's your thoughts at this point on shortstop? Well, Gavin Lux is going to be our starting shortstop. Um, he's going to be out there quite often. Um, I, I do feel that acquiring Miguel Rojas raises the floor as far as, uh, you know, Gavin hasn't, uh, you know, taken 600 plate appearances. He hasn't played every day um, in the big leagues. So having uh, Miguel there, having Miguel play some second base, having Miguel spell Muncie at third base, uh, popping him out to left field. Uh, making sure that Miguel Rojas does get at bats. Uh, but I see Gavin taking down the line share. What do you see in Gavin in terms of where he is in his development defensively at that spot? You know, um, I, I think he does a really nice job of catching the baseball. And um, the thing that I don't think people appreciate is he was, uh, he came up as a shortstop. That's the only position he knew. And to go on the other side of the diamond, and it's a shorter throw. It's a it's a different angle. Um, Gavin likes the ball in front of him, play play the ball in front of him. So I think that he's going to feel much more comfortable back at home. And I uh, trust the player. What's your conversations with him uh, been like uh, this winter? It, it's more of try to drown out the noise. Um, obviously, there's always speculation, and you know, as an organization, we're always trying to get better. 
So um, talking about potential uh, replacements for Trey, um, certainly. Um, but continue to stay focused on yourself, continue to get better, uh, keep your head in the right place. And that's what he's done. And uh, as everything's falling out, uh, I love our club. And uh, Gavin is a starting shortstop. Major turnover in terms of personalities within your clubhouse. Justin Turner moves on. Uh, Cody Bellinger moves on. What's it going to be like without those two guys? Well, uh, Justin's going to be different um, in the sense of he truly was an extension of me and the coaching staff uh, and had uh, the trust of the player, which is very unique for, for, a, for a player to have kind of that um, as far as on working both sides of it. Right. Um, so he was a glue for me, for our ball club. Um, I'm hoping uh, Mookie and, and Freddie uh, embrace the roles <clears throat> as leaders on, on the club alongside Clayton. And uh, I think J.D. Martinez, J.D.'s had a lot of uh, success, a lot of experience, and he's an alpha. And so um, says the right things, does the right thing. So I expect him to kind of work in seamless as a leader as well. Um, and, and as far as Cody losing him, that defense, uh, the kind of levity, the jovialness, the, 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 the will, the desire to play every day, he's a former MVP, you know, that's a void that we're going to have to fill out in center field that we just still haven't uh, got there yet. Dave, give me an example of, you mentioned uh, Justin was an extension of the coaching staff where he helped you guys with a particular situation. Well, I, I think a lot of times, Buster, you know, it's, uh, you know, he's a guy that has done everything in the game as far as being a non-tender, all-star, bench player, starter. Um, and he was a veteran, so he's got experience. Um, you know, obviously the way that I do things with the Dodgers and try to divvy up playing time, you know, whether it be platooning guys at certain points, you know, he'll have that conversation with the player to keep his mind right, to be ready in that fifth or sixth inning for that big hit, because we might need him there. And, you know, a manager can say things, a coach can say things, but if a player that the other guys respect, uh, comes from them, it just lands better and sometimes softer. And, uh, he just understood that. It was all about winning that day's game and whatever it took, he was on board with. What about center field? What uh, what do you see out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think center field, it's going to be hard to replace uh, the defense uh, that Cody provided. Um, but the names that we've got internally, I really like. Uh, Chris Taylor, Trace Thompson, James Ogden, we saw glimpses of last year. Jay Hay, Jason Hayward um, is uh, going to be on our club and we're excited about Jason um and uh so we got some names out there bradley zimmer who we acquired um and so we'll see um there's some names and that and you know what i don't mind the competition i think that's healthy what are they telling you about walker bueller you know with walker um i talked to him a couple weeks ago he says it's going well um you know i wouldn't put anything bet against walker so I'm not closing the door on a September um, showing, but uh, I, I, if it happens, great. If it doesn't, that's more what was we all expected to see him in 24. I had a conversation with Noah Syndergaard during the 22 season, uh, and he mentioned, you know, because we've all seen the the drop in velocity that he's had. He mentioned that he intended to go to driveline this winter. I don't know if that's what he, what uh, what he did. What are you hearing about him in terms of his winter work? I'll tell you, once we signed Noah, I think it was in uh, right before Christmas, um, 
he has spent the last month and a half in Arizona with our guys. Um, as far as uh, his weight is up, I think he's up 20 pounds from last year. Uh, even in his pens, velocity up. Uh, he's built a relationship with all, all of our pitching guys. I just saw him at FanFest a couple of days ago. He's in great spirits. He's very excited about being a Dodger. And, you know, it's exciting for us, Buster, as an organization when Noah, the Dodgers was one with a bullet as far as where he wanted to land uh, this winter. So uh, it's a great relationship. We've already started off the, on the right track. So I'm excited for him to have a great year. What do you think you guys do well in terms of bringing in pitchers? Because it, it always felt, you know, with the Tampa Bay Rays, this would happen constantly. I think with Houston Astros, it happened constantly where, you know, they would identify a pitcher and the guy would come in and he would have success. You guys have been one of those landing spots in recent years. I think the thing is with the player, uh, the hardest thing for a player to get to a player is to build the trust and you get trust with consistency and a track record. And, and the Rays have done a fantastic job. I would say that the Indians have done a great job and I think we've done a great job. And so when you have that uh, and you have uh, a player seeking us out, then you're already, you know, you're already miles down the road. And so once we get the player, uh, we get their buy-in, then it's a lot easier than uh, the skepticism or the doubt. Uh, even if it is the same information. So I do believe our information is great. I do believe the people, uh, you know, that we have, the personnel is great. But I think mainly, Buster, we get the buy-in from the players that we get. So I've asked some of your peers about the the rules changes and what's going to be big. And a lot of those conversations have mostly been around the pitch clock and defensive shifts. But I can't remember, it might have been Scott Service who said, you know, the base is being slightly bigger that might have more of an impact than what people realize. And nobody's going to know that better than you, Dave, <laughs> given your history as a, you know, as a base dealer. What, what do you think that that could be? What might we be looking at there? I, I think it is definitely going to be impactful. Um, God, I might've had 50 more stolen bases, Buster, if I had those bases in my career. Um, I, I, you know what? I, I do think it's going to be, it'll add to the safety of the first baseman. We had that incident with Max Muncy a couple of years ago um, that might've been uh, prevented if the bases were bigger. That's part of the, uh, the, the genesis of that, of that thought also to make them bigger, to make uh more offensive, you know, whether it's running down to first or stolen base. So uh, we we're doing some things. I think it will impact uh, the game in a positive way. And the next thing is we're just got to, you know, identify those dynamic players and then um, put those athletes into practice it. And cause that's what the fans want to see, but also I do like the, you know, the no ship. So you're going to see those plays in the Tony Gwynn 5.5 hole, and you're not going to have three defenders on one side. Um, I think the pitch clock will uh, speed up the game. I think the hitters are going to have a harder time um, with their routine in between pitches. And I think that that's going to be a calibration for them. I think right now, as it is, the pitchers are going to have an advantage of being ready when to quick pitch a, a hitter. So a hitter only has a one timeout and then at bat. Um, so that's going to be different um, because pitchers in their bullpens, they work quick. I think there's a handful of guys that really work slow when the game gets going, but I think that they can adjust and, and players are pretty uh, adaptable. This is an impossible question for you, but just based on your history as a base stealer, based on your knowledge of, you know, the rules that have been put in any kind of guesstimate in your mind about, you know, the percentage of stolen base attempts maybe going up in 2023. You know what? I, I think it's certainly going to go up and that's an easy 
that's easy take but honestly a lot of it still has to do with the personnel and and i think that um the truth is is that there needs to be some incentive um you know for the stolen base because there's a lot of players around the league um that don't love the stolen base uh for fear of potential injury um there's no compensation um so this is a different uh conversation you and i might have down the road um but i, I think uh, it, it's fair to say the attempts are going to increase i mean i i think you know 10 percent is fair so in other words, the players have to see a, a benefit in their careers. Like it's something that's going to help yeah. distinguish them in their careers before we really see the, you know, the jump that, uh, you know, maybe that uh, you know, would be fun to see. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. All right. Last one. Uh, what, what, how would you assess, you know, you played for the Padres, you work for the Padres, you live in San Diego. How would you assess that, uh, that rivalry as we go into this year? Cause it looks like it's going to be one of the, the, you know, kind of the Red Sox Yankees of the West. No, it, it is. I mean, and obviously um, that's kind of the ultimate, you know, goal for, for players, for fans. Um, the Red Sox Yankees, obviously, you know better than anyone how deep rooted that is. But, you know, it, it comes with winning consistently. And, uh, you know, with Peter Seidler um, um, at the helm, ownership and AJ doing his thing. So they've built, uh, they've acquired a lot of talent and uh, they eliminated us last year. That's not going to be forgotten. Um, so I, I think the rivalry is, uh, is well on its way, which is uh, fun for baseball. All right, Dave. Well, I will see you uh, sometime in spring training in Arizona. All right, bless you. Be well. We'll talk soon, my friend. Okay. Take care. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash buster. Just go to indeed.com slash buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today 
Vivid Seats, experience it live. Ben Sherrington is the general manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And Ben, you've been doing this a long time, yeah? You've been, you've been doing this, uh, this uh, you know, baseball executive thing for a long time. You've been following the media for a long time. I think I'm getting there. I'm getting to the point of being experienced. <laughs> okay. So I wanted to ask you, I thought about, you know, knowing your personality. Uh, when we've seen stories come out this winter that the, the Pittsburgh Pirates asking price on Brian Reynolds is crazy high. You know, h- how do you react to that as someone who's been in the sport and has been in the middle of conversations, you know, trade conversations for a lot of years? Um, well, I try to remind myself that I'm, um, I'm a fan for, I was a fan first, still a fan, you know? And so, um, you know, I, I, I get into that kind of story as a fan, you know, it's part of the, of the off season and thinking about what teams may or may not do. And, um, so I try to remind myself of that. And then in this job, um, I know that I, I don't think I can help the situation much by saying much about it, uh, for anyone's sake, because it's such there's such nuance behind, you know, trade conversations. There's such nuance behind, you know, contract conversations. It's hard enough to do either of those things well. Trying to do both, I'm definitely not going to do well. So um, mostly I let it go and just understand it's, you know, it's part of the business we're in and, um, you know, try to keep an open line uh, of communication to the, to the folks who are uh, inside the Pirates, including our players. So when stories like that happen, I'm curious, do you read it as, is this leverage? Are they trying to send you a message? Are they trying, are they trying to CYA a little bit in terms of just in case their, their teams don't, aren't the team that uh, makes a deal for a player? I, you know, I don't know. I think, I think sometimes it can truly be um, just, we're all going to have different perspectives, opinions of players. And, you know, one team might feel like something is, um, above another team, you know, and I think that just, that does happen still in the game. So I think some, some of it can just be that. Um, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't want to speculate as to the other reasons for it, but I appreciate that during the off season um, news about baseball is good. It's just part of the, part of the business we're in. And um, fortunately we'll have other things to talk about here soon enough. Players will be on the field. Have you had a chance to talk to Brian uh, during the, in recent weeks and, and what have those conversations been like? Uh, we've had a chance to talk this off season and I look forward to uh, connecting with him again soon. I, you know, try to give him space uh, for the chunk of the off season, but I'm sure we'll have a chance to get together soon and, and talk. And, um, you know, he's, he's a really good player who's a super reliable player and he wants to win. And so those are things that we appreciate about him and, and we share his desire to win. So I think we have a lot in common actually. And, um, I know our clubhouse appreciates him, you know, a lot. And um, I'll, I'll look forward to catching up with him soon. I know, you know, him a little bit, uh, you know, through Vanderbilt uh, as an undergrad, met him there. Um, and, and he strikes me as being someone in a situation like this. And I understand it came from, uh, you know, his camp. But it seems a situation like that. He's got the sort of personality to handle handle this pretty, pretty, pretty deftly. I think so. And, you know, I think you've probably heard, um, this term used and, and it, it, it comes from people we both know, but, uh, you know, there's, there's players that you just trust, you know, and I think that's, that's a simple word that I would use to describe Brian, both trust certainly the, the player on the field, but also trust the player 
um, off the field in terms of, you know, what he's going to do to give himself a chance to be good and help, help our team. And, and um, we've got a high level of trust on that. And so, and then we'll, you know, we'll do whatever we can. I'll do whatever I can um, to help him towards that and help, help our team towards that. So I heard from folks with other teams midway through last year that they felt like that you guys were starting to turn the corner uh, in what you're doing. What's your read on it? Well, we think so, but that's that turning the corner thing. You know, it's not a it's usually not a straight turn or a straight line. There's there's jagged edges in this thing. And and we're not naive. We lost 100 games last year. That means we got a long way to go. Um, I don't think there's a day we can take anything for granted. We've got to continue to find every way to get better um, on the field, off the field, you know, in, in anything we do. Um we are, I am, and we are excited about the group of players that we'll have in spring training because I, I do believe that whether those players start the season with our team or whether those players, you know, get more time in the minor leagues or there's still development needed, um, I, I really believe that there's a group of players in spring training that have a chance to be, uh, to develop into a core uh, for the Pirates. And then Obviously, we've got to do our job, continue to do our job really well to, to help supplement that core, help those players get better. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like it's an exciting time to be with the Pirates. We've gone through a very difficult two seasons. We made decisions after the 2020 season that we knew probably would make the last two years difficult. Sure enough, they were. Um, and, you know, we all believe it's time to start getting better. And, and we think we have the players that are going to start helping us do that. So, as you know, O'Neill Cruz, it feels like every night he's on a highlight reel of some kind. Uh, some of the numbers, you know, probably not as high as he wanted to last year. What do you feel like that he needs to do to get better as a player? I think just continue directionally with where he uh, left off last year. So um, on the defensive side of the game, you know, he, he really wants to be a shortstop. He cares about it. He's he's certainly willing to put in the work on it. Um, you know, Donnie Kelly, our, our bench coach, who also doubles as our infield coach, went down to the DR this winter, spent a week with him kind of in his in his setting, uh, continuing the work that they had started uh, last year. He's already here and in, in, O'Neill's already here, has been here in Bradenton now for a few weeks. Um, he's in a really good spot physically. So defensively, I think it's just continuing the work that he started on the offensive side of the game. We saw as the season went on. Uh, swing decisions started to improve. He started to reduce the chase rate just enough. He doesn't have to be, you know, Juan Soto uh, to be, you know, in terms of the, the discipline and the swing decisions to be a great hitter. There's so much impact there that, you know, he, he can make an impact on a pitch that a lot of guys can't. But just improving it enough uh, to give himself a chance is what he started to show last year. So I think it's just continuing that into the spring. Uh, we, he's got a good rapport with our hitting coach group led by Andy Haynes, and they're they're just going to pick off where we left off uh, last season, I believe, and uh, it'll be fun to watch. He, he does some fun things on the field, obviously, which make it fun as a fan and someone who loves baseball to watch. Um, but to his credit, what he really wants to be is just a good, consistent player, and, um, you know, he, he's, on, he's on the right track towards that, we believe. What's the most amazing thing that you can remember seeing him do uh, on the field? Or maybe it's off the field. I don't know if he, he shoots baskets or, or yeah. dunks. Or... <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's the, the throws from shortstop um, I've never seen. And, you know, at, at the same time, you could say, like, he, there's some balls that he hits that I've never seen either. So I guess it could be on either side. But uh, there's something about some of the throws he play, makes at shortstop that, 
you know, it, it, it does look like a different species. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, you're not used to seeing human beings uh, throw the ball like that with the level of pace and just, and it's, it's the first time I can remember in my career where we've actually had to like actively talk about um, a first baseman's ability to receive a throw from him as like, you know, as part of our assessment of a first baseman is, you know, can he catch the ball from O'Neill? And that's, I don't remember like, you know, really talking about that um, as part of like, you know, a, a first baseman's defensive game. So um, that, that would stand out to me. You're, you're old enough to remember, uh, remember Sean Dunstan throwing a Mark Grace across. Yeah. And I, I thought about that when I saw him throw last year, because I was thinking to myself, um, I, I think part of what I always remember about Sean Dunstan is the cameraman who followed the ball on the first base side seemed to zoom in on the ball. So it almost looked like Mark Grace was being overwhelmed by the throws. That's the closest thing I can I can think of to seeing a first baseman almost in a defensive position taking the throw. Well, we saw last year. I mean, our guys did a good job with it, but <laughs> there was – you have to be really locked in. Uh, there's, there's no, uh, there's no taking a playoff when O'Neill's playing shortstop. All right, Andy Rodriguez, an intriguing player for you guys this year. Uh, what's your plan for him as you start spring training, and and when, uh, when might we see him in the big leagues? Well, we want him to catch a lot um, for um, a couple different reasons. When we acquired him, you know, the truth was we 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 liked the offensive traits. Um, you know, had good stuff on the athlete, the makeup. We knew he had caught, but we didn't really know what the position was going to be. And so for the better part of the first you know, year and a half, we, we moved him around. He played multiple positions. Um, that was partly to allow other guys to get in the lineup. But as he's developed, um, it's become more you know, clear to us that he can catch. Uh, he ought to catch. And so we want, to, we want to just get him behind the plate as much as we can, as much as he's able to do physically so i think both in spring training and the season that'll be a focus i would anticipate you know probably there's some more time and at the triple a level that's where he finished up last year um again the defensive part of the game you know we just want that to be as mature as it can be um you know particularly at that position but he's he's a player that you know we, we you know excited about the talent but also if you're around him um he's someone that players and staff are really drawn to, you know, if you go and watch a minor league game and watch the dugout or behind the cage, there's sort of this congregation around him. Um, and um, that, that, that sort of, you know, it gives us a good feeling <laughs> when, when you see someone like that, who teammates are attracted to at the minor league level. Yeah. Especially in a catcher, you know, you, you want that, uh, that type of personality. All right, Ben, thanks for doing this. Uh, always great to talk to the LC in Bradenton. Pleasure Buster. Anytime. See you soon. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter and producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great, Buster. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, at the outset of the show, we heard a clip from a Jim Carrey movie, which begs the question, what's your favorite Jim Carrey movie? Because I'm oh, guessing no. you probably like them, right? Are you Jim oh, Carrey? Oh, my gosh. I mean, have we not discussed that I know nothing other than baseball? I mean, come on. I probably, <laughs> let's see. Was he, I, I'm so bad with movies. You I'm and like, Tim. Adnan, like you I'm, and Tim, right? If you ask yeah. Tim anything, like, hey, Tim, have you ever seen The Godfather? He has no idea. <laughs> have you ever seen The Godfather? No. 
<laughs> oh man. And I know it was made long before you were born, but at the same time, wow. Well, I mean, when I did watch movies, which was probably in like high school, I avoided anything remotely scary. I think the scariest movie I watched was uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, and that took some convincing. So uh, I think the premise of The Godfather probably would have been too much for me at the time. Okay, just for the record, The Godfather's not a horror movie, okay? I know. So I'm assuming, like, you have you seen Halloween? There's no chance, right? You haven't seen The Exorcist? No. I'm thinking of classic scary movies. (laughs) Uh, No, Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay. (laughs) 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 All right. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is six. So as I mentioned, uh, I know baseball. I know sports in general, not so much in the movies. And of course, we have the Super Bowl coming up on Sunday. And with Travis Kelsey and Jason Kelsey, we're going to have brothers face off in the Super Bowl for the first time. And the moment I saw people talking about that, I thought about the Nolas, who faced off in the NLCS just this past year. And of course, Jason Kelsey was at like every Phillies postseason game. So there's a connection there, too. So the Nolas were the sixth set of brothers in baseball to face off in a postseason series. The others were Sandy and Roberto Alomar, Sandy Jr. in the 97 ALCS and 96 ALDS. We have Garth and Dane Orge in uh, 1985 in the ALCS. And then there have been three in the World Series, so that's probably the best comp. Ken and Cleet Boyer in 1964. Bob and Irish Musel in 1921-22-23-and-23-and-Doc-and-Jimmy-Johnson-in-1920-number-two-number-two-is-5.9-so-that-is-the-war-figure-that-Julio-Rodriguez-of-the-Mariners-is-projected-for-this-season-according-to-ste
And then 93, Griffey was second. Number one. Number one is 20.3. So 20.3% was Juan Soto's walk rate last year. And again, sitting here February 8th, I see that. And I'm like, man, that is a really high walk rate. If you think about it, 20% of your plate appearances, you walked. And of course, because he's Juan Soto, he's done that before. So that was the third time that he has had a qualified season with a 20% walk rate or higher. That is already tied for the fifth most such season in MLB history. Ted Williams had nine, Babe Ruth had eight, Barry Bonds had seven, and Max Bishop had six. Juan Soto is tied with Jimmy Wynn, Mark McGuire, and Eddie Sankey. This is a player who has yet to take a play parents as a 24-year-old, and he has already walked in 20% of his play appearances in three separate seasons. Yeah, he is... Absolutely remarkable. Uh, and I, someone I know we're going to talk a lot about a lot this year. I think he's going to bounce back, you know, uh, from his finish. I think it was just a classic case of a guy putting a lot of pressure on himself after joining a new team. Uh, your Super Bowl pick, who are you picking and uh, how many points? Because Vegas is listening. I am. Well, they should not listen to me. Uh, <laughs> I am picking the Chiefs because my mom is a Niners fan. And so I'm not going to pick the Eagles for her. But I have to say the Kelsey storyline is my favorite thing. I recently discovered their podcast, all their interviews with their mom. And I mean, it's so much fun. And uh, I do expect it to be pretty high scoring. I mean, I hope Patrick Mahomes is fully healthy now with that ankle after uh what we saw happen early in the playoffs, hopefully having basically two full weeks off is enough. But I'm really excited for uh, the Super Bowl this year. And by the way, this morning, the Mets dropped a Super Bowl ad, which is pretty crazy to see a regional team, the New York Mets, having a uh, Super Bowl ad. So uh, that <laughs> was fun to watch before I logged on here. Which leads me perfectly, without you knowing it, into a bleacher tweet from Amy Amy R. Chapman. Uh, she writes to us, what's the status of Keith Hernandez coming back to the Mets booth at SNY? How common is it for a team to get sold that the media partner doesn't get sold with it? Lastly, when will the Wilpons stop ruining the Mets? Uh, I, Amy, I'm going to answer. I actually made a call before the podcast, got some information on that. Um, look, they're at a stalemate. Keith is looking for an increase in salary I think that uh, what's going to happen here is that they need a deadline uh, and then eventually they'll work it out. This is not Steve Cohen's deal. It's the Wilpons deal because they own SNY. And Sarah, I can't imagine that Keith Hernandez would not re-sign with the Mets. Yeah, I mean, it seems hard to imagine. That booth has been so iconic. Uh, last year, they became the most frequent However, you would word that booth in Mets history. They've called more games than Lindsey Nelson and Ralph Kine or any other combo. So it's really hard to imagine Gary Keith and Ron without that K in the middle. So I imagine these things happen. I mean, 
we have so little info on these kinds of negotiations, but they tend to work out. And, uh, you know, I think Mets fans seem very excited for the upcoming year, and apparently that's going to be on the national stage on Sunday. So I think uh, they'll get their voices the way they're used to. Yep. No question about it. All right, Sarah, good to talk with you. Thanks for doing this. Awesome. Thank you, Besser. Doug Glanville is an analyst for ESPN and for the Marquee Network. He played nine years in the big leagues. And Doug, I was thinking about this as I was getting ready today. Uh, I've had a lot of conversations with players through the years after they retire about their career statistics. Uh, <laughs> if on a, on a grading scale, and you teach a class at UConn, we're going to get into that in a moment, but from A plus to F, how well do you know your own personal statistics from your nine years in the big leagues? Well, it's funny you say that because I used to literally do that to my teammates every spring training. I'd bring out the media guide when it would come out. And I'd really? ask them, how well, yeah, how well do you know yourself? And uh, people had really had no idea what their stats. But of course, I'd ask them how many triples they had in like, you know, A ball or something like that. So it wasn't exactly easy questions, but, you know, I stumped them very often. So that's how you got to do it. Make it spicy. Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm gonna throw some uh, some some stats at you. See what you know. Career homers. Uh, well, all right. I'm gonna add an asterisk to this. 59, and I should have had 60 because I hit a ball down the left field line in Colorado. Dante Bichette overran it. It ricocheted, rolled into left center, and I scored. They ruled it a double and a two base error, even though he didn't even come close to the ball. And then the the scorer official scorer tried to change it but he went on vacation. So when he came back, there's like a 24 hour rule. And when yeah. he tried to change it, it was too late. So I stuck on 59 home runs, unfortunately. Oh my goodness. <laughs> career batting average. 277. Yep. Uh, career hits. 1100. Exactly. Stolen bases. Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> I have 180 something, 183, maybe somewhere. 168. Okay. A little reverse 168. So I, I'd give you, I'd give you a solid a minus, you know, okay. in terms of knowing your stats. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, those, those are big ones, but I, I'd ask them how many doubles they had in double a that, that just, they had no chance. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right. So uh, we, uh, I was talking with the general manager yesterday and he mentioned how, you know, January is, it's kind of the point now, you know, every, it feels like every day there's an article about ranking the top 10, uh, you know, players in this ranking the top 10 players in that, uh, it, you know, ranking the top 10 rankings. And this general manager was like, I bet you guys are dying to get to spring training. I actually talk about real baseball, but uh, because so much of the winter business has been done, what team intrigues you in terms of the work they've done this winter? Wow. It, it's been kind of fun this winter. Uh, the first, I, I think the San Diego Padres, <laughs> they're, they're really intriguing to me because you know, I got to cover them through the postseason last year and call Dodgers series. And of course they upset the Dodgers. And I was like, you know, that was their albatross. And and they finally beat the Dodgers kind of like, well, what do we do now? And, and the, what did we do now now has to combine with someone like Fernando Tatis Jr. Coming back and where is he going to play? You get Bogarts. I just think it's very mysterious on a team that is super talented and has a chance to really go deep into this postseason, even deeper than last year. And they already went far. So I'm I'm just fascinated, particularly how you bring back Tatis 
Jr. in all under all those circumstances, what kind of player is he going to be? This was one of the best players in the game when he uh, you know disappeared, and um, and then with Bogarts coming in and and the fact that they've just gotten better uh, with the pitching that they have in return, you know this team could be fantastic, but they could also implode if they don't have you know the right touch. You know with Melvin how how things are handled. Yeah, I, I and I I agree with you. I think I think they're a fascinating team. Uh, and the other thing too about the the Padres is is we know based on what they did this winter, you know, making the highest offer to Trey Turner, indicating to Aaron Judge they're willing to basically blow the Yankees out of the water in the offer they made to him. Uh, when we get to the trade deadline, they're going to jump in. That's right. No, that's right. I mean, they are, you know, look, probably they've been working on the, the this is our year for a while. Right? <laughs> and, you know, guys are getting younger. Machado is still pretty young. But, you know, they're trying to seize the moment. And they made the big, you know, uh, signing with Bogarts. And they also, you know, take someone like Kim, who really was kind of an anchor to this team, and move him where he's sort of best suited. And you have a Cronenworth. And, I mean, this is a team that was really good last year. And they were sort of like a, a usage of a pitcher in the bullpen away. Uh, maybe a, a starter going a little bit longer away from, you know, being in that World Series. So, uh, but I think the Tatis story is just too much to to ignore because it's just fascinating on, even if he comes back himself and, uh, you know, gets out of this cloud, where is he even going to play? You know, where is he going to even play? You know, And, um, you know, when you have a great player like that, you know, you think of a Chris Bryant wins an MVP and is playing left, third, right, center. Uh, you wonder if Tatis is going to be that kind of talent, be a, a utility player that's just a perennial MVP candidate. There have been players through the years where you feel like uh, when they're traded in a, in a given moment, like, boy, the team that's getting him is getting him at the right time in his career. Because maybe there was an issue with an, his initial team, a contract situation, or maybe the guy was just young. You know, maybe he's it's 24, 25, and then he gets traded, he's 28, and he seems like he's mentally ready to move forward. I kind of wonder if that's what's going to happen with Tatis Jr. Like, he he got pounded within the organization after the injury that he suffered with the motorcycle, um, and then he had the PED suspension last year. You get the feeling like this year, you would assume he's probably super excited to put it all together. Yeah, I mean, it, it, he's going to have to navigate this you know, mindfully. And and I think the part of the reason he became, you know, kind of the poster example of baseball was because he did navigate things. He pushed the culture in a way that uh, was, was like highly respected. That was what was made him so transformational and so tragic because you had a player that was young, came in and had veteran players making the case that his sort of cultural addition is, is actually what the game needs. So you had veterans instead of hating on him and saying, Hey, you know, be quiet rookie or do this or, you know, he kind of cut through all that, even when they tried to go against him when he hit the grand slam on a 3-0 count or whatever. He's just, a, he was that transformational figure. And and so you kind of lost that, uh, you know, you, you started to see, you know, the things fray apart because of the PED suspension. And you're like, well, what was he, was he an illusion? And on top of that, I was fascinated in the negotiations at the players association level. You know, I come up in a generation in the 96 or so, where it wasn't like the veterans were ever going to fight for the young guy saying, you deserve more now. That was not the conversation, but it was the conversation in this collective bargaining. I think a lot of that is because they recognize that whether they need a middle class or they need to bring young guys who have already proven and established as everyday players who then are grossly underpaid, they need to bring them up. And Tatis was to me like the pivot point of all those things. He had veteran players supporting him culturally 
which is tough as a young player. He had veteran players supporting his class of player in the economic side of the equation. And so when he blew up, you know, that was tragic on a lot of levels for the game and for young players in certain ways. But fortunately, baseball has so many young, talented players to step in. So he's going to have to come in with a certain kind of like, I still need my swagger, but I have to have a certain humility because of just what has now been like stuck to him, whether whatever reason or not with PEDs and just the decisions he's made at a young player. And look, I don't know what I would have done at 23. I didn't get to the big leagues until 25. And, you know, you're just, there's so much you're not ready for, even with the fact that he comes from a legacy player and his dad, it's still a huge jump, especially as talented as he is. And the fact that he was declared like the face of baseball. April 20th rolls. Okay. Uh, I'm going to make you Bob Melvin for a moment. Uh, you're writing out your lineup card. Who are your first four hitters? Cause I got a strong opinion about this. When you're talking about a lineup that includes Manny Machado and Juan Soto and Xander Bogarts, Fernando Tatis Jr. I want, I, I think that naturally Cronenworth and Grissom and some of the other guys are going to slide below that. But how are you lining up those first four guys? What's the strategy that you would use? Well, first of all, I, I don't smoke cigars, but I probably would smoke a cigar on that day because <laughs> I, I cannot be wrong. I mean, that's just like, I could just sit back and be like, it doesn't really matter. Uh, that's how good those guys are at their best. Uh, you know, and I, and I got to watch, you know, Machado a lot, you know, I like him, you know, that guy is unbelievable. First yes. Of all. So, I mean, so I like him like in the three hole, like he just kind of embodies it. He just has that. He's confident in the situational hitting. He can adjust to anybody. He's clutch, you know? So I like him there and that experience. I mean, Soto is probably the toughest one because he can drive and runs, but you could see him in the leadoff spot because he's going to be on base a thousand times. <laughs> so, so it's like Soto's on base. You put an escalator or a people mover from home to first because you know he's on 50% of the time. Uh, and then you have like a Tatis, you know, you could put him in the four hole. And, and because he, <clears throat> before he went out and went down, this is a guy that drove in a you know, hard hit rate, all the things. He was just was a leader in every category. I think he welcomes that. And, and the fact that Bogarts get hit second because he's got such back control you know, win-win. You might flip Machado and Tatis, or I don't think you can lose, and that's the beauty of that team. I just want to know where they're going to put Tatis, you know, in the outfield, DH, right field, center field. Um, Grissom didn't have a very good offensive season, even though he plays phenomenal defense. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of time in left field, a lot of time in right field. You know, we had AJ Perla on the podcast last week, and he he talked about that. Here's how I would arrange it. I, I got Tatis Jr. going leading off. Uh, dynamic out of the gate. He's got the speed with the new rules. I think he's going to steal a ton of bases. Um, I got Soto hitting two. You know, you go right, left, high on base percentage. I agree with you. I love Machado third. What we saw with Machado in the postseason, it was pretty, no one was pitching to him. Other teams are not afraid of Josh Bell or whoever they put in that spot. Well, you know what? You put Xander Bogarts in the four hole, teams are going to have to pitch to Manny. In the way, and 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 Xander's a guy he can hit good pitching. Uh, he's going to hit for a high average. Going to so if there are runners on base, I see him as being a guy who's going to take advantage of those situations. That does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, that's what I like about the fact that they they can choose those four guys and have the right matchup, and they both they're all hitters that can hit anybody. So yeah. that's a comfortable feeling. Uh, there was a period where Machado was just destroying left-handed pitching. Uh, you know, so you always have that ability to flip-flop him. But I, I like all of them. And I, other than Machado not being my leadoff guy, I think you're pretty comfortable. <laughs> Bogart has such good back control. 
And one thing about his career that's been fascinating is I remember you know, calling games early in his career, and he he was like what I call a down the drain guy. You know, the first at bat was his best at bat. And then as the pitchers adjusted to him, he just got worse. He, he was just struggling in that third plate appearance, especially the starter third time around. He's like reversed that in his maturity. And he's still, you know, 300 hit and all these things with power. But he's just become a guy who just gets better as the game goes on. And, and that's a guy that's so dangerous late in the game. And and in a, in a moment and a time where strikeouts are so dominant, he can put the ball in play and use the whole field. And and San Diego's big, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, you don't have to hit the home run. You're going to have to, you know, when the Padres did well in the postseason, they they could get their base hits too. And um, and that's why Gr- Grisham and Cronenworth kind of carried them in the early rounds of the yeah. postseason because they got the base hits. They got the, you know, they moved the ball around. So you'll need that. And, and those four guys can do it, all of that, uh, which is why, like, I just think they're a fascinating team to watch because I don't know how Tatis is going to come in. How healthy is he? What's his state of mind? Uh, but if he's everything he had been going into the season, wow, that team is that team is deadly. Yeah, and they're they're fun to watch, and and they, because they're way past the luxury threshold already, you know that uh, they'll add during the course of the year. Okay, a team that's befuddled you. You know, I, I think it's I, mean, I have to look at my old squad, the Chicago Cubs. You know, I don't know exactly what they're doing. I'm sure they know what they're doing, so I, it's not a judgment of like what their decisions are, but, you know, they, they seem like they're in between, you know, you, you kind of get Swanson, you get the number two, one, a starter, you kind of, you know, they're kind of hovering in the middle and I don't know what they need to see. You know, it's whether it's like Horner can be this guy and Swanson at short who now, as he gets older, you know, may not, you know, where are you going to move them if you have to move them to third or, you know, you don't have the shift anymore because you can't cover people the same way you can't have three guys on the left side of the field or now you got to figure out like where you're going to put these guys as, as they get you know, older uh so i i don't know like and and you know is cody bellinger going to be who you know who's that guy going to be are they pushing suzuki in another spot because i think suzuki has a huge upside so i just think it's a mystery especially with the injuries from their pitching staff of like are they where are they trying to go are they going to add especially when they have the money so i think that's the befuddling component it's not that i can't see the talent but i don't i feel like they're kind of like in between and you know are, you know what what's the con- concession we're making is it, is it the cardinals are that good I, I don't think so i think i think that division could be caught you know so um so i'm very curious on what they're going to do and then what kind of players are going to be in the in the trade time uh, in that in that period of time where they can make moves because uh i think they could just really be a coin toss yeah, uh, and and Carter Hawkins, their general manager, you know, came from Cleveland, uh, and just yeah. watching them put together team this winter, it felt like you know what they're going down that path. They're going pitching and defense. Now we can have a larger discussion another day about whether or not the Cubs should be more aggressive than that. But it looks like that there'll be a team that you know they're going to have a tough time putting up a lot of runs, but they're going to catch the ball in their ballpark. I could see them being really dangerous. I know this, Doug. Those games are going to be so quick. <laughs> you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. it just feels like that the the Cubs are going to play a lot of two one three two games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and look, they 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 needed to strengthen that defense, and you know, Horner Swanson, you could get Gold Glove, you know, arguments all ar- around that infield from the from the standpoint of second and up the middle, and that's going to be critical. You know, whether Bellinger, you know, played great defense in center if that's where he settles in. So yes, yeah, so you got to catch the ball, and I'm just wondering about, like you said, their ability to score runs. And and they just got to stay healthy on the pitching side because it doesn't matter 
if you end up with fly ball pitchers, you end up with guys that are, are not executing, then you know you, those gloves aren't going to help you as much. All right. You teach a sports management class at UConn, and you're working on a piece uh, basically where the theme is, would my class be banned in Florida? Uh, Doug, you work on so many different things. Uh, when you told me this, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just a moment for me. Like I've taught this uh, class on sport and society for about six years now. And uh, and we dive a lot into identity because the lens which we're looking at is when sports are engaging on social issues, a lot of it is about identity, like, you know, whether it's representation or or gender equality or racism or there's so much around policing. So these social questions are, you know, flowing through sports more than, you know, ever in some ways, right? Maybe not the 60s. Uh, you have um, a lot of conversations around these topics and and race racial dynamics is important in this, especially talk about basketball and NBA, the bubble and so on, WNBA. And and so when I saw what was happening in Florida, the stop, stop woke act and just all the questions around like how you deliver content, even though the college, there's been an injunction about the college level and whether that sticks, we'll see. The idea that the content has to be framed a certain way to, to so that you don't guilt people, you don't make people feel bad about history. And, and I'm curious about what that actually denies people who have been through certain things, right? And what that dynamic is. And so I looked at my curriculum all over again. I said, well, I better look at this because I certainly never want to teach the course with, an, you know, accusationally towards people because of their identity. That's never been the goal. The goal is actually to unify people uh, through a lot of hard you know, experiences that go through life, you know, whether it's uh, through sports or through experience I personally had. So, so I really try to bring people together around the best elements of sport, about equity and fairness of rules, about the fact that your team and you're coming together through different backgrounds. I've loved that about being a, a major league ball player. player. Players come from all over the world and we got to figure out how to be a team. I think that's an asset. So I use sports to get into those conversations, uh, but I am mindful that everybody's welcome to this conversation. And I want to make sure the content reflects that, but it's hard stuff. I mean, Ferguson police report, you know, George Floyd, I mean, I get into all kinds of things and there's racial implications. And, um, and I think, you know, when I look at my own history, I realize uh, so much, you know, if you take my family, for example, they were Phillies fans and, and my great aunt and uncle uh, migrated there from the South. And so my mom's aunt and uncles were all there. Uh, you know, they they loved baseball, but when the Phillies treated Jackie Robinson like garbage yep. when he came through, they they were like done. They were done. And so on one hand, I'd love to tell you the story about, oh, my great aunt and uncles were Phillies fans, but I'm not telling you the whole story and the pain of that without telling you the other part about Jackie Robinson, how they boycotted going to the Phillies game until I came back in like 98. So, <laughs> so I think that it's important to, Talk about Martin Luther King, and that's great. But you got to talk about Martin Luther King, who protested Vietnam War and spoke out against, you know, labor practices and called out the clergy. And yeah, that's also King. Because why is that important? Well, so in my identity as, as a black man, I I need to see that where there's a there's layers to people and the complexity. That King was angry. That Mar that Jackie Robinson didn't want to stand up for the flag. That's important. That's important to see because that that kind of validates my the the range of emotions but if i try to give you the stripped down you know milk toast version of of like these figures then you're kind of missing uh what it does to those that have that relate and were in that struggle whether directly or from the fact that you're feeling the impact of it later uh generations later so 
I'm curious. I, I did look at the framework of of their the course, and it's it's actually very robust. They they did adjust some things because in Florida, some of the things were declared unlawful, and that's the argument you can make. You just call it illegal, and then you can't you can't even have a debate. And I think that um, so I'm watching that really closely and uh, onward with my class, and I think it's done well, and I think people have um, students have enjoyed it, and if they ever speak about certain things, uh, I'm very mindful of how they feel in the class. Uh, I always address it and I, I express to them that we're all learning, including me, and I'm learning a lot from the students. So, um, you know, so I'm going to write about this and just kind of wax about it and, and just see, see where it goes. But, um, you know, I'm not trying to get deep into some political debate as much as understanding the impact of these kind of conversations. And uh, and so we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's, as you were talking, I was thinking back to uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had all the conversation about the Hall of Fame. And I find myself veering toward race in those talks, because, as you know, one of the central elements now in the Hall of Fame voting is the character clause. And I like to point out that the character clause, you know, that the writers hang their vote on uh, was written by a segregationist, <laughs> Kennesaw Mountain <laughs> Landis, you know, who worked to keep blacks out of baseball. And the idea that this whole process is hangs on the work of someone who wouldn't pass his own character clause. Would it be so as you were saying, I was like, I wonder if I if if I couldn't speak to that when, you know, we were in a class in Florida. I I, I it just occurred to me and I like kind of. Yeah, um, you're right. Yeah. I mean, it, it touches so many elements. I don't know how you separate those threads because it is so ingrained in our history. Yeah, I mean, and. And I, I, I generally just say, look, I, there's a syllabus. I go through it and yeah. I try to update it and make it current. And look, I, I, I just operate off of the shared humanity. There's, there's people of all walks of life in my class and they all need to feel welcome. They all need to feel right. like they're part of, part of this history. I think that's a real basic, simple way that I think I, it, it can be successful. And, and yeah, at the best of what Florida may be trying to do, like if it works kind of for all groups of people and not just sort of particular groups of people, then yeah, fine. You you want? I don't think you you're gonna say, oh, okay, I'm gonna hold you accountable for what happened 100 years ago. But we have to be honest about recognizing the the residual effects that still exist for what happened 100 years ago. And by the way, there's many events in history that were some of the worst crimes against humanity that people never even had any accountability for. They didn't go to yeah. jail for. I mean, just take Tulsa, Oklahoma, or right, whatever. Exactly. Um, if you steal land and burn people, you know, and and nothing happens, and and you have generational wealth from the fact that banks lend loaned you money to gain wealth through your your housing choices and then other communities if you're black you didn't get those loans i mean of course that affects you in 2023 uh i'm not you know but you have to figure out how to frame that and historically by not saying you know saying that everybody in this room because of their identity should be arrested for that that's not the point i think you just have to be honest and connecting those dots and and reflect back on history through the true two sides of the coin of, of many of these figures and many of these moments. So um, it's, you know, it's an ambitious goal, but I've taught this class now six different semesters at three different universities. Uh, so I feel very confident in, in the material and, and I'm open, you know, I try to read objectively about what Florida is trying to do and just try to keep an open mind. And I immediately took some of that and tried to look at my curriculum objectively. And, um, you know, I think it's, it still holds up uh, by the standards that I believe are important. But I also, it's never bad to go, you know, I want to make sure these students feel welcome. It's never bad to review that and make sure uh, that everybody feels secure in my class. Doug, thanks so much for doing this. Always great to talk with you. Buster, thanks for having me. 
Bleacher Tweets. All right, Buster, it is time for Bleacher Tweets. Our first one comes from Jeremiah Avise Rouse. Sorry if I messed up your name. Reading our team, what amazing business people. Who would you rank as all-time baseball business people? Well, all-time baseball business people, it's hard to beat Walter O'Malley. You know, he purchased the Brooklyn Dodgers, of course, uh, and ran that team and then moved them to Los Angeles and built this mega franchise. Uh, George Steinbrenner, when he bought the Yankees in 1973, I believe this is accurate. Um, you know, the 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 announced purchase price or the reported purchase price at that time was $10 million. From what I understand, George Steinbrenner's share of that $10 million purchase price was $800,000. And now, my God, how much are the Yankees worth to his family? Something in the range of $5 billion if they were to sell them. I think right now, Jim Crane of the Astros is someone I, I think is really clearly excellent at business. You know, they, they were one of the first teams to adopt the tanking strategy, which I don't like, but it's hard to argue in terms of making money business-wise. Uh, they, you know, the front office built this uh, excellent team that is continually in the World Series that has won the World Series twice in the last five years. And they've done a really good job of managing their payroll. You know, Jim is, and Jim has had a hand in that. He's told players, like, I'm not going to a six-year contract. So I think Jim Crane's really good at what he does. All right, next up, we have Corey Rucker. Valley Sports appears to be headed to bankruptcy. If that would happen, would it allow MLB to stop the terrible blackouts? Corey, I, it's a great question. I actually made some calls this morning to try to get an answer for it to see if any of it's related. I haven't had people get back to me. I know that privately, people within the sport kind of wince about the blackout policies. Um, so I, I hope that moving forward that this does facilitate some resolution there. And that is it for Bleacher Tweets. Be sure to submit your questions using hashtag Bleacher Tweets every week and be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Yeah. And next week, um, we're going to start uh, getting cranked up with the start of spring training. Uh, I'm going to be in Dunedin, Florida. There's going to be a rules talk by Major League Baseball. I'll be there. Report back uh, after that. I think, uh, Sarah, next week we're talking about doing two podcasts, maybe like uh, the morning of Valentine's Day and maybe on the morning of the 16th, the day after that rules committee. And, and we got a couple of special guests we're trying to get. So I'm fired up about that. Yes, it's back. Baseball is back. We're back to multiple shows. So excited. Okay. As happy as you sound, we know Sarah Lang's even happier. Uh, there's no <laughs> yeah. doubt about it. I mean, she doesn't watch other movies. Oh, my God. Who doesn't see The Godfather? All right. My thanks today to Dave Roberts, Ben Charrington, Doug Glanville, Jessica Mendoza, Sarah Langs. You know, we'll give Taylor a little bit of shout out. But Sarah Abbott gets the, uh, the big shout out this week for the heavy lifting that she's done. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.